I'm Melissa Roach with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. On this episode of Below the Radar, our host Am Johal is joined by Ken Leotier, a downtown Eastside legend and a champion for binning in the city. Ken shares stories from founding United We Can and the growth of the binners community in Vancouver. I hope you enjoy the episode. <laughs> I was going to start, Ken, by saying uh, welcome to Below the Radar, our, our podcast, but this is uh, a different type of uh, conversation. Uh, I first met Ken in the, the mid-90s uh, or so at United We Can. Jim Green introduced us uh, when we were starting a, a program, but uh, welcome, Ken. Well, thank you very much, Jan. I can't exactly remember when I first met you, but if it was in the mid-90s, it was probably right at the beginning of United We Can. And you were trying to um, develop a humanities course for people from the downtown east side that wanted to explore university studies. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. It was it was actually closer to 97. Okay. 98, I almost started, so a little bit later than 95, but yeah. uh, United Can was up and going and was an amazing place with uh, lots of people coming through. I Just going into there, just seeing the clinking of the cans as people brought them in and as they were being moved around and uh, just uh, hearing you and Jim talk about um, economics in that way really blew my mind. <laughs> it became all of a sudden very unacademic. For any of the people that listen to your podcast, they'll know that you have that kind of event. But when it gets to digging in the garbage can, it's, it's much less academic than it is just straight scratching for material. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But anyway, yes, we did have an amazing little enterprise on at United We Can. And many, many wonderful people worked there mm-hmm. and came through there and work all around our city still today, doing all that work of picking up the garbage and recycling it. Can I? Can you maybe share the story? A lot of people might not know, but how you first uh, came to the downtown east side. Um, gee, well, I I was born in 1947 in Vancouver. Well, in North Vancouver, so I've been in and around the city all of my life. I've never really gone anywhere. I lived in Victoria for about a year. I've traveled a little bit, like momentarily, but. This is my home, and, and I never went anywhere else. So I uh, I had really quite an idyllic early life, but something happened in my my life, health issues for one, and, and probably mental health issues. So I didn't, you know, I don't know when you're in the middle of mental health crisis, whether you really fully grasp what's going on. I still maybe don't. But in any event, I... Um, slowly over a period of years cycled down to the downtown east side. I I held various jobs, but I was racked with illness chronically, and uh, and it just became pretty unmanageable. And the downtown east side, in spite of all the bumps and scratches, to me anyway, felt like a place that they probably couldn't throw me out of. (laughs) Sounds awful. But when I got there, it was sort of like I fit, you know, like, what I saw on the outside sort of fit like I felt on the inside. So it had its, that kind of a, a safety about it. 
it sounds strange to say that, but it was like I'd I'd felt, I guess, probably, you know, rejected and set apart and and uh a lot of that self-isolation, but I, I have that sort of perception of the world that I wasn't acceptable. And in the downtown east side, I might not have been acceptable, but there was nowhere else to go, right? But in any event, that's kind of the process that I went through. And in, in an ironic kind of way, there was a, a time in that sense of I have a place here where it's like belonging, you know, like when you feel like uh, it's communion. It's really the sense of we are together here. It's okay, you know. And uh, it might not have been, but that's how I felt inside anyway. And it was profound because I hadn't felt that. Maybe as a child I did it. I don't know. But, you know, my emotions develop in different ways. And I think maybe I was somehow emotionally stunted or I don't know. Plus, I discovered alcohol and drugs. So, of course, that was a, a real factory down in in our community to score what I needed to comfort me from the pain, you know? So it was a fit. So I don't know if that really explains things. I did have another life. I had, you know, I worked and I did other stuff, but I gradually descended. I, I pretty well settled in the downtown east side around 1932, or 1932, when I was around 32 or 33. Ended up homeless. Good Lord. At a time when that was not an acceptable thing to do. Well, you could if you hid, you know. I used to hide under the umpapa if anybody goes back that far. Sort of at the foot of Main Street, beside the railway track, where the overpass goes down Main now. And uh, I had a, a hangout of packing crates and stuff under there. But anyway, I, <laughs> I earned my stripes, man. God. <laughs> <laughs> now you mentioned that you had you know chronic pain from from Crohn's and other um, things and just you know myriad reasons how people come to the downtown east side and make it a home and, and contribute in so many uh, ways and and you you also found uh, places that you know were important to you at at particular moments and, and continue to be you know you talk about the the dugout and First United Church um, as places that welcome people in. I'm wondering if you can speak to your experiences of first uh, encountering these types of, of places and what, what they mean to you. Well, um, when, you're, when you're out in the cold and um, you don't really have anywhere to go and your shoes are falling off your feet, and you're kind of hungry and not feeling good and got a cold and it's wet and you're wet and everything's wet. To have a place where you can kind of duck inside and uh, get some heat and, and something to eat and maybe even talk to somebody is um, pretty serious business. As I say, I've been down here a long time and I've seen, you know, enormous amounts of effort put into service to try and uh, support and help people that are in struggle in our community. And there's lots of us. And, uh, you know, nothing that we've created in terms of those services is perfect, eh? It's just, you know, people trying to help each other. And uh, 
sorry, it's probably I'm an emotional guy at the best of times, but I think probably I'm on meds and stuff that are making me more sensitive. But no, um, when I, I just said when I think of all the efforts that people have put in to help me, and I witness it, you know, and I try too, but but you know it's flawed, eh? and and there's so much hurt, and it's hard to know. And we try to get, you know, maybe this can help, maybe that can help. But once in a while, for some people, we strike it lucky. Eh? For some reason, the stars align or whatever. And in some ways, that kind of happened for me. Um, partly because people were so damn patient with me, you know, they didn't throw me out because there was no else to throw me to. But uh, I did get locked up a few times and I did get sort of drugged out on psychiatric drugs and whatever just to keep me in line, I guess, because I was pretty haywire in those early days. And I still can get, well, not maybe as extreme just because I don't have the energy. Eh? <laughs> but when I see people that are sort of strung out in our community, I know how that is. Mm -hmm. Ken, uh, I'm wondering um, in one of the things I've really always appreciated um, about you is, you know, the way you're such a, a pillar in the community and you know who you are and, the people who you represent because you work with them, but you you always um, took the time to meet with all sorts of people, policymakers, politicians, other people, artists, those types of things. And I'm wondering if you can speak to, you know, what United We Can offered you from that vantage point in terms of being able to push for broader policy changes. I remember visiting you once and used to have binners dinners uh, at United We Can, where it was, you know, literally people just getting together for for food and coffee and being able to talk about things, which was really about building community. I also remember uh, the artist Jermaine uh, Coe doing a, a project where I think she spoke with you and uh, eventually set up an installation at Center A when it was located oh, yeah. on Hastings Street. <laughs> but wondering if you can speak to some of those things, because I think you were such a wonderful ambassador to the neighborhood in opening up the conversation about what it means to live in this neighborhood and what the positive possibilities uh, were if people looked at things a little bit differently. Yeah, well, I mean, number one, I think, is people have an assumption when they look at the downtown east side, well, it went back for a long time, probably has to do with attitudes that people have towards welfare and people on welfare and charity and all this stuff and why don't those lazy bums get out there and get a job like real people and whatever or real jobs or whatever you know i have never seen harder working people than the people that work picking up cans and bottles and bringing them into united we can those are the hardest working folks in the world so it's never been an issue about people being lazy bums that's just not the case people want to work can work when you know people will work as much as they are able if they have a chance, if it's something they can do. And uh, that's really important to understand. So when people have got an opportunity to do that and they can come together and participate and, in a sense, demonstrate that they have value, they don't have to demonstrate it, they have value already. But, you know, there's a way, there's a connection to that dominant value in society that you have to sort of have to prove yourself. 
So when people are able to do that, and that basically requires the movement of currency across the counter so that they have cash from their efforts, then there's something that gets chugging along in people to do more. And that was one of the pressures we had at United We Can. Once people got an appetite for earning money, they wanted to earn more. And it was always a struggle to get more jobs, more stuff that people could do. And of course, people had still really limited incomes because the work that we were doing paid nickels and dimes, you know? It wasn't like people were earning a king's ransom dumpster diving, but it was something. Eh? Mm -hmm. But we had a big struggle to get um, human resources or welfare or benefits or whatever it was called at the time to hear that maybe, you know, it was worth considering that getting uh, over the idea of people earning some money while on welfare might do something to help people move ahead. And so that was one of the things when we did Binner's Dinners, that came out loud and clear, you know. We had these little kind of projects where people engage in stuff and these other messages about where people were at and what would work for them became really clear. And we were able, because of the circumstances of United We Can, to articulate that to decision makers, you know, who needed to hear it. And we weren't dependent on their government grants to make the business run, which was an important thing, because oftentimes it's hard to criticize the hand that's uh, feeding you, you know, you don't bite it. But I just use that as an example. The dinner's dinners, though. I mean, it had a social aspect to it. But out of it, of course, people talk about what they're up to. And what they were up to was binning. That was their common thing, right? And they always had a lot of issues around that. That's really important to learn about. If you want to find out what's going on in the downtown east side with people, get down there, roll up your sleeves on the streets with people, hang out for a long time, <laughs> and you'll find out and learn some stuff about what they really need, you know, without making assumptions about how it's supposed to be. And it's hard to do. It's hard because I, too, like I get all judgmental and have my prejudices and whatever, but it's really a piece of work that I think we all have to do on ourselves as we are involved here to readjust our perspectives on what's right and how to get there, you know. Anyway, I probably went way off topic there, but no, 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 it no. was really important, you know. And, uh, you know, I'm at a stage now sort of passing on, but it was another thing that was really hard to get through to people was that United We Can was their thing, you know. We built it together. It wasn't Ken Leodier that built United We Can. I remember we one time we had enough loot that we could put an awning out front of the place. And uh, it was a pouring rain day the next day. It was in July, but the next day after we put up the awning, it was pouring rain. And the vintners used to line up outside before we opened our doors with their baskets and stuff. And I went out to pass out cigarettes. I guess that's wrong today, but that's what we used to do. And, you know, the guys are all waiting in line and, and I, they're all grateful for the awning. And I said, well, do you realize, you know, where that awning came from? They said, oh, I guess you just part of your business. And I said, it's part of your business. You know, like they're the ones that work together. <laughs> you know, they, they put that together. I couldn't have done that. And I think this is not just the downtown east side. I think it's everywhere. People have an idea that it's somehow Pharaoh's Egypt, you know, and we're going to orient ourselves in this weird kind of pyramid 
that ain't it. We're all just brothers, eh? And it's so hard to get that, that spirit going, particularly if you have to take the lead on something because it tends to create a gulf, you know? So it's really important to constantly keep reaching back and stepping back with the truths and remembering who you are. You know? can, can you talk a little bit about where the, the idea for United We Can came from and how you actually made it happen? Because I think you probably would have had to bring people on board and there was probably rules that worked against it and that type of thing about how you got the seed funding to get things, get things going. Yeah, well, I suppose nothing happens in a vacuum, but there's also some mystery to this stuff, too. It's like I was saying earlier, you know, sometimes luck just sort of has a, a play in things. But I dumpster dived big time in the city. And finally, I sobered up um, in 1989, sort of got my act together in terms of not drinking and drugging anymore. But I, I'd been, I dumpster dived all over the city when it wasn't a popular sport. It was like not that common, and people that did it sort of hid away. It sort of had a self-esteem thing about it. And even poor people would kind of look down their noses at doing that, digging in other people's garbage. But I, I guess I got to a point that I really didn't care. And it was funny, too, because I had what was known in the day as hash eyes. Like I'd, I'd be out on the street, and I'd see drugs wherever I'd, I'd find bottles full of alcohol wherever I went. So people used to hang out with me because I was really lucky at scoring, but I didn't drink or drug anymore, right? So they'd be, <laughs> they didn't want to get their hands dirty, but they were happy to take the, <laughs> the findings. But many of them, yeah, I did a lot. But there was lots of problems with, particularly the refund deposit system in BC back in those days. That was like the late 80s, early 90s. And, and um, you know, you could only take back so many cans and bottles and there were only certain kinds that they would take. And, you know, it was it was really, and you could only take them to certain stores and there was no bottle depots. So it was not just a challenge to pick them all up, but it was hard to get them all back. And they cut the rate on them and say, oh, well, we'll give you two cents out of five and all that. Anyway, a couple of us were complaining to one another about the scam, the, the ripoff of the whole system and how we could do it better. And a, and a friend from a local church heard us, overheard us, and he said, well, if you think that you could do something, I might know where you could get some money to help. So we were, of course, interested, and he said he had a fund. And so we applied and got $1,500 to do a one-day depot in Victory Square where we would pay people to bring in cans and bottles, non-refundable ones, to Victory Square on a certain day. And we invented this little system of how we tally it all up. And we handed out you know, leaflets and posters and whatever. And then on the day of the event, we went up to Victory Square. My friend Bill Tremblay and I, and I had this little strong, this strong box with the cash in it. <laughs> it was hilarious. We go up there and people were lined up, like all around Victory Square, up Hamilton and around the next block. And it was unbelievable. Like we did this land office business because, I mean, we had no idea who would get this, you know. As I say, up, up till that time, it was semi-invisible. Eh? But people got it. They understood what, what this was, right? And so they came with all these bottles. We ended up with this mountain of bottles in Victory Square 
totally a loser as a business because they were all non-refundable. And <laughs> we had to pay a truck to take it out to the recycling yard. But I'll tell you, it was the best damn community development experiment I ever saw because it was just a natural, right? People knew how to do it. They knew how to count. They knew what stuff was. And they figured it out. We had volunteers helping. It was just like instant success. And everybody loved it. So then after that, when we'd meet each other on the street, people say, oh, man, that was so cool. When can we do that again, right? Let's do more of those. Yeah, well, it took finding more money to do more, for starters. And the point was, we wanted to try and change the rules, right? Mm -hmm. So it took us a long time. That was probably 1990. It took us about five years to sort of plan our little business venture. And it was like many, many meetings and workshops figuring out we're going to write a constitution. Good Lord. Well, the vendors were writing constitution. We didn't have other models, though. We, we knew nonprofits because we'd seen all these services around. We kind of knew how they were. But we were going to have our own. Right? Anyway, that was very good. <laughs> Ken, what are some of the more memorable stories at United We Can that you, that you remember? Oh, I'll tell you, some would curl your hair. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was a rough business. It wasn't uh, always smooth sailing, you know. And when you've got a ship that you're, you're trying to steer and people expect you to steer it right, remember one of the things that I was on the board of United We Can, and then the board decided no, they, they had hired somebody or they were going to hire somebody to manage the place, but they didn't think that would work. And then they decided they wanted me to do it. And I had not really planned. I was actually had a pretty good life as a vendor. Right? I hadn't really planned to do that. And I didn't know anything about management or all that stuff. I knew nothing. But anyway, they, oh, no, you can do it. So I ended up doing this thing. And uh, then I got some support from various places. And one of the support was from a place that wanted to do board development. It was one of the academies. And it's fair enough. They wanted to sort of show, teach people how to be board members and what their responsibilities were. I wasn't a part of that, but they were doing it. So then the vendors had a, and after the board development meeting, meeting, and they came into the office. We were just about to close up. I was counting the cash and getting ready to lock it up. And uh, they told me as a group, no, you can't lock it up. I, was, I locked it. You can't lock it up because we want some money out of there. We want to have a party tonight and we're the board. And I said, no, that's not going to happen. And, <laughs> And, and they kind of knew, you know, but they'd heard this other story, like they were in charge, right? And they said, well, why the hell not? And so, but what, I mean, the point, and there was other things like that where, you know, people come into a culture, basically, and they have different ideas. You know, of course, they have different ideas. They don't know that culture. So they're sharing their wonderful ideas. But it may, there's a disconnect. Unless you embed yourself in the culture for a while and get to understand where people are coming from is very easily can go off the rails. Eh? Another mm -hmm. thing, like at Christmas time, like most of the people that were involved in United We Can, there's been SROs around the, the downtown east side and, you know, estranged from family and disconnected in many ways. And, you know, if they're going to hang out, they'd hang out in, in the bars and stuff, right? But anyway, at Christmas time, I mean, I, I don't drink, but 
I wasn't a big sort of moralist about people having a drink or enjoying themselves. So we'd have a big party on Christmas Eve at the Bottle Depot because we opened on Christmas Day half, halfway through the day to do bidding. But people would get together in that Bottle Depot on Christmas Eve and party and tell each other stories and get close. And nobody had to show them how to be a community. They were. They are. You know, people know how to do that. It's a natural thing in us. And if you give people an opportunity, of course they do. You can tell I love them. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. And, and Ken, you know, in the downtown east side, you've seen so many versions of the city coming in with different plans for the future, people coming in with development and this and that. There's always somebody trying to shape the neighborhood in particular directions. That'll be um long after we both pass away. But I'm wondering if you can speak to what your aspirations for this neighborhood are in the in the future. Ah, uh, gee, it's a dream, but I got I cut my teeth getting involved in the downtown east side on social housing through First United Church. That's when I learned anything about this sort of at a different level social issues and involvement of people. But and so for me, without the housing, without decent affordable housing and affordable for poor people, it's very hard to make a go of it. And I just think there's loads more opportunity than we want to acknowledge for our capacity to do that together. I mean, I think it requires a fundamental rethink of use of land, land use, basically, to use it for highest and best rather than maximization of profit. But that's too revolutionary for our time, has been all along the way. And we're becoming more and more economically invested and tied into having land as an investment rather than as an opportunity to maximize use for people. But in any event, I mean, I just think that the number of offices that are sitting half empty downtown here and how we maybe need to look at those shells and turn them into something else when there's people laying on the streets. Eh? I mean, it's, there's, a, there's a level of hypocrisy here that's awful. But I got it in me too, right? Because mm-hmm. I don't, I see people laying on the street and I don't bring them in anymore and lay them on my on my floor. I can't handle it. You know, I, I, I can't handle the the needs. So it isn't just about providing a shell. It's about supporting people because people are already broken and they're getting more broken. So it requires more and more to support people to help through those hard times. And we don't know the half of it of what it is, but it takes to help people through that hard stuff, right? I mean, we're building this massive hospital down here next door. You know, good. We desperately need something close by, a big health place that can help people here. And we should be planning right now for the intermediary pieces between that huge place that we're building and the brokenness in our community and thinking of what kind of fits there are where people can live, get healthy, be supported, get on with lives that are meaningful and purposeful and valued. And we're missing the point on that one so far, as far as I can see. And I don't know what it's going to take to crack that nut, but it's a fundamental one for me. Like the housing piece is is fundamental. And the pressures between 
I get it. We live in a capitalist economy and developers are sort of in there trying to generate revenue out of their developments and they're trying to make profits and there's that profits going on all over the place. But we're also a human economy. I mean, we're people. We're not just disposable. And, you know, it's time to start, yeah, picking up people. It's not so easy, though. But, you know, that's the thing. You know, if more people roll up their sleeves, get involved, discover the reality of it, see it for what it is. And it isn't, I mean, one of the things I think is really important is not to throw rocks at the other guy, you know. The other guy has a, his perspective and his values and his skills. And if we could join forces sometimes and work on these problems, we may get way, way further ahead than we thought, rather than totally being mistrustful of the possibility that we really could be human beings together. You know, everybody that's involved in this has a human heart. This system was built by critters like us. You know, we got minds, we got hearts, we have souls, I guess if you can find them. But I think most people, if they can get past their own sort of stuff, care, I think that that's what I see. Yeah, we have we have some ways to go on some of the hateful stuff where we need to re-educate ourselves, you know, discrimination stuff, stuff against women, against, you know, visible minorities, disabled people, all that stuff. There's a lot of re-education of people that needs to happen, including yours truly, you know. Just with this, you know, truth and reconciliation stuff, I've learned enormously. I'm going through cancer treatment at the moment, eh, through radiation treatment. I, so I have to go to the cancer center, which is like um, a mini United Nations. Eh? So it's wonderful. It's brilliant. But anyway, I went there with a friend, uh, a longtime friend from the downtown east side. He's Chinese origin, right? And anyway, we went there and we were treated by a woman who came from the Philippines and uh, a nurse. And she was telling us about how the day before the anti-vax people were protesting and they blocked people from getting into the cancer center. People had been waiting months there to get an appointment and then they were blocked. But anyway, she wanted to know how come I knew Jimmy, my friend. And explain why we've known each other for a long time. Anyway, she thought that was very interesting that a white guy like me would know a Chinese guy and have him as his friend to come up to the cancer center. And she, anyway, the thing was, she started to talk about how with the Asian attacks and stuff, she had sort of a built a wall, a barrier of defense. See? And then they were talking about it, Jimmy and her were talking about it, whatever. And, you know, I realized I don't have a clue. God, I know I need to hear those conversations, right? I just sat there and listened. I thought, this is such an education. I don't know what it feels like to be in somebody else's skin, but I can learn. It never crossed my mind, you know, unless people are able to talk about this stuff. But it was rich, man. Mm. I've learned more in the last little while than a long time. It was very good. Ken, you've always had a real generosity with people, even those you might immediately disagree with. I'm wondering uh, what your influences have been, either people that you met or things that you read that you know informed your way of working, uh, which was to kind of reach across difference and to talk with different types of people in, in the work that you were doing to help bring uh, people together. Well, I read a lot. I come to my house here and 
like so many books. So a lot of them not read too, but I've read a lot. But I don't know if I've got it out of reading. I have a spiritual journey that I've been on since I sobered up. I think that's helped, you know, sort of test a moral compass that might have already been there, but broken or twisted or something. But it, it uh, adjusts. But one of the keys, I think, is to be honest about how we feel, which is hard. I mean, I've been pretty weepy during our conversation here. And I I, I, I say that maybe meds are a part of that. But it's been at the time of my life, too. There was a lot of emotional stuff going on. But to be honest about how we feel, for example, you're sitting in a board meeting. And you're sitting with other people who have their agendas. And you have one, too, whether you can acknowledge it or not, but you have a perspective on things. And there's something on the table to be discussed, and there's decisions to be made about it. And there's power plays up at work there. And people are sizing it up to determine how they can get their wishes met. And sometimes, maybe rightly, maybe wrongly, I might start to feel a little tension. I'll start to feel my heart beating a little faster. The way the conversation goes, I feel I'm being pressured, you know. I don't like the feeling of this is uncomfortable. There's a little bit of fear in there. I don't, you know, I'm trying to hold everything under control, but I can feel the adrenaline starting to go, and I can feel I'm getting an edge to my voice, and I don't like it, and it's uncomfortable, and I need to say so. I need to say, this is how Ken is feeling right now. Describe it. Not accuse anybody of what they're doing, but tell about who I am and what's going on for me and put it on the table and say, when I'm feeling like that, I can't make a good decision. So I need to work through why I'm feeling like that. And when I can adjust that, I can help. But to not be honest about it, either risk going along just because you're going to go along with the herd because you know you don't really know or you know, well, you just don't want to be upset or confrontation might still risk confrontation but i personally think it's way better to get real and honest and not think you're smarter than the other guy and you're going to out negotiate him or whatever sometimes you can but i think being honest and recognizing what your capacities are you know but honesty not just about the cash register but about what's going on in your heart. <laughs> That's hard to do. Because when you do that, it really makes you vulnerable. Eh? It really puts you at risk because then everybody knows where your sensitivities are. But we don't have to apologize for having that. We're all just learning, you know? And if we really want to change things, God, it would be nice if people could get there together and be more real rather than having their, we're going to bully through our agenda, you know? Not the way the world is bit, built, I know. We do this adversarial system, but I think if we could get closer to those things, we might make some way, way better decisions. That's my opinion. Uh, Ken, I know that you've had challenges to your health the, the last while, and I won't dwell too far in it in the sense that you're probably going to lots of meetings and appointments to it, but wondering if you can speak to how you're spending your your days as you as you go through this well i'm i'm busier than i've been <laughs> it's unreal i mean i'm gonna tell you a secret Al. 
which maybe not breaks until after I, I croak. But, you know, in my old doctor diving ways, I was able to squirrel away a, you know, a vast fortune, which nobody will believe until I'm gone and I've distributed it to all those that need. But no, important fact, I have sort of accumulated a little asset, which I have a plan to contribute to try and do things to help our community move ahead in a spirit that I want, hope that people can believe in. And uh, some good people that are willing to come on board and support that. So it's been a little bit of a thing to set that up and get it in place and get my will done and get the banking done and get stuff in position. And um, I have a wonderful group of neighbors in a place where I live that have been really supportive. And of course, then I've got this endless sort of ongoing effort to sort of keep me relatively comfortable. I have, you know, a little while. I don't have a long while, but I have a little while and I want to enjoy it as much as I can. And, uh, you know, I was thinking of our old friend Jim Green before we were going to talk today and his love of opera, right? And listening to some opera and it's so beautiful. And uh, that's, probably, that's probably why I'm all emotional. Right? Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, for, for most of my young life, I hid my feelings and I killed my feelings with alcohol and drugs. I think that's a lot of what I see around me in the downtown east side. People that are in so much pain, they're trying to kill their feelings. And we, we feel before we think. So it's okay to have feelings. It's how we express them, right? But in any event, so yeah, I, I'm enjoying beautiful things. I went out and enjoyed the sunshine a bit today, talked to a friend, did some recycling, and uh, I'm just keeping can going until can isn't going to go anymore. And you know what? I'm not afraid at all about it. It's totally okay. I, of course, I'd rather be here for 100 more years. It's been a great life, but I'm not afeard and I'm not depressed. I'm just sort of uh, where I'm at. You know, this is living and dying are totally normal things to happen to every one of us. So it's okay. You know, we're all, we're all here. I always think this is eternity. This, this is the main act. We're in it right now. So it's okay. <laughs> We've had our little taste. It's good. Well, Ken, I I just want you to know you're a you're a joy and an inspiration to so many people, including me. And just watching you work from a distance, be interviewed on television, to run into you for a conversation, we learn from you just by being around you. And you've sort of played that role for a lot of people, even though even if people hadn't told you that in in a while, it's very true. You're someone that we all learned from and and to help us think in a different way and there's a gentleness and a generosity to your spirit as well that helps build community because of the way in which you work and i think it makes us all better people to be around that way of working so i just wanted to make sure you knew that well and coming from you am i consider that a really really nice compliment and uh the feeling is mutual. And I learned from you too, my brother, lots. So thank you very, very much for sharing that. That's very nice of you. 
And thank you so much for joining us and taking some uh, moments in this time uh, to speak to us. Is there anything you'd like to add? No, I'm done. Well, not quite done, but I'm <laughs> done for now. <laughs> well, well uh, it, it's wonderful to see you in, in good spirits during this, this time. <laughs> I was going to say prepare for the second coming, but I better not do it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Love thank you. Thank you so much. Take bye care. Bye. Love you. Bye. Love you, Ken. Bye. Bye. Below the Radar is a Knowledge Democracy podcast created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. This has been our conversation with Ken Leotier. Read more about Ken's life and work at the links in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Below the Radar. <laughs>